So uh, last week we started this series. It's kind of a tricky series. Like, what do we call this series? I'm I'm not as uh, not as good with with series titles as Pastor Joel. Because if I were, a word of the series title wouldn't change every week. So um, today the sermon is called "Building a Life of Obedience." Last week it was building a life of stewardship. And I told you out front last week that, that this is a series about stewardship. We're talking about how we use our stuff. Now you can go as broad as you want with stuff. That can be the car in your garage. That can be the, uh, the cash in your bank account. That can be the time in your day. It could be the talents and the gifts and abilities that God has used you. And uh, as you'll see today as we walk through the scripture, I would encourage you, and I believe the Holy Spirit will prompt you to, to apply these principles to a specific area of your life. It just so happens um, that, that every text that I'll be preaching from, uh, the application point is money. Um, uh, and, and if you're a guest today, I said this last week, I'll say it again. And probably for the next, you know, four weeks after this, three weeks after this, um, that's not all we talk about. It's just what we're talking about these five weeks. Uh, we're, we're, uh, we're spending some time here because this is where the Bible spends time. As a matter of fact, uh, Jesus said more about money in his, in his ministry than he did about heaven and hell combined and so, no apologies that we're spending some time here, but if you are a guest today, um, don't, don't walk away thinking that that's all we talk about, that it's true, the church is just about getting your money. We don't, we don't want your money. Um, we, we want the Lord to have your heart, and then he can tell you what to do with your money. So last week, we talked about uh, this, uh, these, these verses from the Old Testament where David is preparing to build the, build the temple, or actually he's preparing uh, to raise the money so that Solomon can build the temple. And we, we kind of got a glimpse of the understanding that King David and the leaders of Israel had of, of this reality that everything belongs to God, everything comes from God, and everything is dispersed by God. These people were so intent on seeing the glory of God come and 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 be communicated to their culture that they were willing to do whatever it took to make that happen. And of course, the end of the story, as we saw at the end of the sermon, was that that temple that eventually David's son Solomon built did contain the fullest expression of the glory of God as Jesus came years later and uh, did ministry in and around the temple. And as the song the ladies sang, uh, eventually the veil tore and it was clear that God's glory had been completely seen. We talked about this, this idea of open-handed stewardship. That I don't, I don't white-knuckle my stuff, my, my, my time, my talents, my treasures, but I, I open my hands and because everything belongs to God and comes from God, is dispersed by God, I understand that, uh, that I'm a receiver and that, that I allow God to pour in and, and, and pour through my hands what he'd like to. This idea of open-handed stewardship isn't just my idea. It's not just something you know, that, I've, I've, that I've read in several books. Um, strangely enough, this whole idea of having open hands comes straight out of Scripture. Let me show you what I mean from Deuteronomy chapter 15. Uh, the verses will be on the screen. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, read the blue words with me. 
Be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you, read the next two words with me, be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. So this idea of open-handed stewardship isn't some pastor's or, or, or Bible teacher's creation to, to make it easier for people to, to give money. This was God's idea, this sense that, that sure, we have stuff that's, under, that's in our name and under our ownership, but but God's desire is that we would, we would have open hands and we would live lives of generosity to help those around us. And so what we, and, and, and I think I can make the step, the fact that it says right here in the, the last sentence on the screen, therefore I command you, be open-handed. I think it's fair to say that, that um, open-handed stewardship is a matter of obedience, it's a command from God, and so to live like this is a matter of obedience. And catch this, obedience is at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. Obedience is at the heart of what it means to be a Christ follower. There's a lot of things that go along with, with being a Christ follower, but right at the core is the question, am I willing to obey. We're going to look at a story from the book of Mark today, Mark chapter 10. We could look at this same story from Matthew or Luke. Uh, we, I've chosen Mark for today, Mark chapter 10. And while you're turning there, let me, uh, uh, let me tell you something you may not know about this, this encounter, this conversation that Jesus has. Some Bible scholars or te- those who teach the Bible, who study the Bible for a living, call this the saddest story in the Gospels. You see, as, as we read it, you're, you're going to see what happens is, uh, as often, often happened in Jesus' ministry, a man came to Jesus to ask him a question. And, and I would say even like an eternal life or death question. And this happened all the time in Jesus. People were constantly coming to Jesus to ask him questions. Some came to ask him questions to trap him, but not this man. This man, from everything we read came with a sincere question. He came sincerely seeking Jesus. But by the time the conversation is over, this man, unlike anyone else that I can find in the Gospels who came sincerely to Jesus, this man goes away in worse condition than the condition in which he came. Matter of fact, Mark says it like this. We'll see this when we get down to to verse 22. But he says, At this the man's face fell, and he went away sad. So he came sincerely seeking God, with a sincere question for Jesus, not to trap him, not to fool him, not to, to find some kind of justification for some kind of aberrant behavior. He came sincerely wanting to know. Jesus answered him, and the man's heart was hardened, and he went away sad. And so before we even dive any further into the text today, uh, I want to ask you, 
Are you willing now, before we ever read the text, to make a decision? What I hear Jesus say to me today, what, what I hear the Holy Spirit, what, he, what I feel prompted in my heart, the things that come to my mind, I'm going to choose now, before maybe I even know what they are, that I'll be obedient, that I'll respond in accordance with the Spirit, by the strength of the Spirit, to what the Spirit says. See, we run a risk those of us who you know, come to church all the time, who've grown up in the church, who've been in the church for years, we run a risk that we hear so much truth that we don't apply and that we don't obey that our hearts become hardened. And, uh, and for, for some of us here today, you've been coming to church for years and like I have heard and preached, you've heard and maybe even taught and been part of different classes and small groups where you've heard what the Bible has to say about your money, about your stuff, about stewardship. And you've heard it time and time again. You could probably preach this sermon. You've heard sermons on this passage of Scripture. And yet, truth be told, you're not tithing. Truth be told, more of your money stays in your account and goes to your hobbies and goes to your entertainment and your desires than ever goes back into the kingdom of God. This is true for all of us. Whenever we hear Scripture proclaimed, we hear God's truth spoken, and we decide to set it aside, to not allow it to change us, to not do what we've been called to do, we run the risk of walking away with our face down and sad. And the scary part of it is what Jesus says two verses later when he indicates that this man was far from the kingdom of God. Friends, I want to invite you as I open in prayer to make a decision now that whatever God says to you today, whatever God says through this series, you're going to do everything in your strength and by the power of the Holy Spirit to be obedient. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are weighty matters. Not, not just the, the, the money and the stewardship and, and tithing and but the matter of obedience. Am I willing to do what your spirit prompts me to do? Am I willing to open your word and see it as truth and understand that, that it needs to be obeyed, that I need to obey it? That these moments when you speak are about me and you and about my obedience. So Father, I pray for myself Pray for my family, for my, my brothers and sisters here across the room. Would your Holy Spirit over the next few moments speak clearly to us and would you impart your grace to us so that we can obey what you ask us to do no matter how difficult it may seem. I pray this in the most powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. I'm going to start reading in Mark chapter 10, verse 17. 
As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, and and, uh, let's count off the commandments that Jesus mentions here. Do not murder. What commandment is that? Some of you are like singing the song. Okay, hold on, Pastor Earl. It's number six. Uh, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. What commandment is that? You have the song going now, so you should have it. Seven. Uh, Do not steal. We're on a roll. Let's just go and, even if you don't know, let's just say that's number eight. It is. Uh, Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. You see a pattern, so that's commandment. Nine. Do not defraud. That's what commandment. Uh, That one's a little tricky. It's kind of like 10, like maybe, like number 10 is don't covet, but, you know, coveting leads to defrauding. So we'll say it's number 10, and honor your father and mother, and of course that's number 11, right? Okay, good, you're awake. Good, that's actually back to number 5. So so why did Jesus, when he says, you know the commandments, why did he mention only 6, 7, 8, 9, and kind of 10, and then back to number 5? Why did he mention those six commandments in that order? (laughs) Yeah, good question. That's a good question, Pastor. Oh, why don't you tell us? Hey, I'd love to do that. So I believe the reason Jesus mentioned those commandments, what, what scholars call the second tablet is because the things that we do, the way we interact with others, the the patterns we see in our relationships with others uh, communicate clearly what our relationship with our Heavenly Father looks like. The way we treat others is an outflow, it's an outward visible expression of the way we relate to our Heavenly Father. We might call this the fruit tree principle. You, can't, you understand the idea of the fruit tree principle? Like in fruit trees, the, the fruit tree principle is this. You know a tree by its fruit. So you don't walk up to a pear tree and say, I mean a tree that's growing pears, and say, what a glorious apple tree. I mean, you just, you just <laughs> look at me like, that's so dumb. No one would do that. Exactly. You know a tree by its fruit. And so the fruit tree principle says that my behavior reveals where my heart is. My behavior reveals where my heart is. And so when this man says, Jesus, what does it take to get into heaven? How do I become part of your kingdom? How do I follow you? Jesus says, yeah, no problem. Like, how are you living? Are you treating others well? Are you obeying the commands? Are you being honest? Are you being faithful? Are you honoring your parents? Are you satisfied with what God has given you? Because if you can tell me, if I can see how you're behaving and relating to others, I know where your heart is. I know about your relationship with God because I see it lived out in your other relationships. My behavior reveals where my heart is which is really hard. That's a really hard truth. Because in the moments like even this morning as I'm at home, we're getting ready for church, and my my son says to me, Dad, I made some hot chocolate with coconut flavoring in it. I'm like, that's great, bud. And then I look and see he used one of my mugs to do it, and I fly off the handle Because he used my mug and didn't ask me for permission? 
Yeah, I know, stupid. And yet in those moments, I began to realize, we have an issue here. There's something going on in my heart, in my relationship with God that, that I need to deal with. And, uh, and if you're, um, you know, if you're being unfaithful to your spouse, emotionally or relationally or physically or sexually, it's not because of something your spouse has or hasn't done. It's because your heart hasn't been ravished by the reckless, raging fury that they call the love of God, the God who loves you so much that while you were still in your sin, he exposed himself to shame so that he could win your heart. And if you're, 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 you're violently or physically aggressive, it's clear that, that your love hasn't been gripped by the tender love of God, which is always strong but never hurtful. You see, the way we behave determines, not determines, it reveals where our heart is. When you say that God has your heart, when you say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, but you refuse to allow God to have your time or your talents or your treasure, what you're really saying is, I'm not actually a follower of Jesus Christ, I'd just like to look like one. I like to say I love Jesus, but don't ask me to serve. I like to say I follow Jesus, but don't ask me to write a check or open my wallet. See, our behavior reveals where our heart is. And what's amazing here, what's, what's, what makes this story so sad is that this young man, this rich young man says, yo, my heart is good, Jesus. Look at verse 20. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him, Mark writes, and loved him. Now, I've already told you the end of the story. We already know this ends on a sad note. And so catch this verse in the middle of that reality. Verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Friends, I want you to understand a couple things here. It is true that God loves all people. That is true. It is even true that Jesus loves those who are living morally unacceptable lives. Last night, we were, my wife and I were watching a sitcom that we've, that, that we've enjoyed. We're, you know, we're Netflix and chill type of, you know, that kind of evening. And, and here in the middle of this sitcom, uh, a lesbian couple gets married. And the, 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 the pastor stands up and talks about God's love for people who love each other. You know what? I can watch that and say, that's not false. God absolutely loves two homosexual people in a relationship. But his love doesn't excuse our wrong behavior. His love is not permission to continue to live wrongly, to behave badly, to not obey Scripture. 
Okay, watch what happens here. Um, Jesus looked at the man and he loved him. It's a powerful statement because we're going to find out it doesn't excuse us from, it doesn't give us permission to do things wrongly. But it can become very empowering if we choose to allow it to because Jesus looks at me and loves me. Even when I, when I really, really, really want to do the right thing, but I don't know how. I'm not strong enough. When I'm very sincere but very wrong. When I want to be committed but I just can't find the, the ability to do it. I'm, I'm lacking in, in, in the ability to be committed. When I want to grow, I want to become a, a greater Christian. I want to go deeper with Jesus but I just don't know how. In those moments, Jesus looks at me, Jesus looks at you and loves you. Again, not excusing perhaps the things that you need to deal with but hopefully giving you the impetus, the strength, the desire to take the next step. Hopefully, when Jesus looks at you and loves you, your response is, okay, I can do this. Whatever he asks of me, his love will bring me through it. Whatever he's going to ask me to do, he's going to ask me because he loves me. That's the desire here. That's the hope. That's the goal. Jesus looked at the man and loved him. He didn't look at the man and say, no, 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 no. That's not good enough. You totally missed my point. He looked at the man and loved him. I think hoping that the love in his eyes and his posture would give the man the strength that he needed for what was coming next because what was coming next, whew, it's one of the toughest things that Jesus ever said. Jesus looked at him, verse 21, and loved him. One thing you lack, go sell everything you have. He's talking to a rich young man or a rich young ruler, depending on whose version you're reading. And Jesus says, you want to get into the kingdom of God? You want to go to heaven when you die? Sell it all. Get rid of everything. Now, this is, this is challenging there's a, there's a sense that Jesus asks every believer to do this. Now hang with me here, because some of you are checking out. You're like, this guy's preaching heresy. We're out of here. We're never coming back. Stay with me. There's a sense in which Jesus asks every follower, everyone who would follow him, to do this very thing, to lay everything down for the kingdom of God. For this guy, the everything was his riches, his money, his stuff. But for other people who would come after Christ, he asked them to lay down something, you know, everything of something else. Maybe for you it's a relationship that he would say, you want to follow me, you need to walk away from that relationship because this isn't compatible. Maybe for you he would say, you need to, um, um, you need to find new work because you can't sell that and have a heart completely devoted to me. You can't be a buyer for that company and, and have my kingdom values at the center of your life. Maybe he would say for you, you know what, you have, you have a sinful passion, an addiction, a, a behavioral pattern that, that needs to be broken in your life. Lay it down, get rid of it, walk away now. Cold turkey, therapy, do what you need to do with the power of my spirit, walk away. Jesus 
asks everyone who would follow him to lay everything down. But I don't know what your everything is. For this young man, it was his riches. You see, Jesus is calling the man not to poverty. He's calling the man to discipleship. He's calling the man to discipleship. And discipleship requires different things of different people. There's things that all discipleship has in common. But when it comes right down to it, Discipleship for me requires different things of me than it requires of you. But discipleship is always costly. There's always sacrifice in being a follower of God. You see, this man's primary loyalty was with his money and his stuff. That's what was most important to him. And Jesus said, if you want to enter my kingdom... I have to be the most important thing to you. And so let's get rid of that other thing that matters more to you so that I can matter the most. It's like Jesus asks him this question. Rich young man, are you going to be obedient to your stuff? Or are you going to be obedient with your stuff? One thing you lack, Jesus says, go sell everything you have and give the proceeds to the poor. So so the first thing Jesus wanted the man to do was to get out of the way what had his, his loyalty, what was the priority to him, that which was keeping him from being obedient to Jesus. says, get that out of the way. Remove that. And he says, after you've done that, I want you to reorient your heart around the things that matter most to my Father. It's not enough to remove what stands in the way of God having my heart. I must reorient my life around the things that matter most to God. And again, what matters most to God? What matters most to an infinite heart and an infinite mind, an infinite being? There's all kinds of things, but Scripture makes it clear in some spots, some things that are very close to the heart of God. Just jot these references down in your notes. And if you're in a small group tonight at the pastor's house, maybe you'll look these verses up. And the rest of you maybe in your personal devotions. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 35. Leviticus 25, 35. Deuteronomy 24, 17 through 22. Deuteronomy 24, 17 through 22. Jeremiah 22, 16. Just three verses. I mean, there's all kinds of others where God gives us glimpses into what matters most to him. But Jesus says, remove what's keeping you from obeying and then reorient your heart around the things that matter most to my Father. And then, then when you've removed and reoriented, then come follow me. And what do you think of when you hear the words from Jesus' mouth, come follow me? Let me hear it. What do you think about? Peter, I, I think someone said Peter, discipleship. Did I hear fishermen? What else do you what else do you think about? Yeah, Jesus said this to the majority of his followers. In, in one way or another, he said, Come follow me. These are, this is an invitation to discipleship. This idea of following Jesus was about living a life like Jesus, walking as Jesus walked, doing what Jesus did, living as Jesus lived. 
We would say that, that, that we want to live a life that people would look at us and, and confuse us, mistake us for Jesus because we, we're living so much like he would live. And that's all true. But in, in this context, I think there's a deeper meaning. You see, every Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all write about this, this encounter. All three of them record that it happens after Jesus has turned his eyes towards Jerusalem. He's at the end of his life, and he knows it. He knows that when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be falsely accused. He's going to be flogged and you know, tried and flogged and crucified. As a matter of fact, in Mark's story, and you can, you can check me out on this if you're getting a little bored right now. Go back to chapter 9 and, and keep going down in chapter 10 and chapter 11. This story is sandwiched between two times of Jesus telling his disciples that he's going to be falsely accused and crucified. He's going to die. When Jesus says to this rich young man, sell everything you have, make, most important, make what's most important to my father most important to you, and then come follow me, he's inviting this man, I believe, on the road to the cross, on his journey to Jerusalem. He's saying to the man, I want you to lay everything down like I'm going to. The man comes and says to Jesus, how do I get into heaven? How can I know for sure that I'm a Christian? That when I die, I'll walk through the pearly gates. And Jesus says, well, remove what's standing in the way of you obeying God. Reorient your heart around what matters most to the heart of God and sacrifice everything for me. Do you see why this is a weighty verse? Verse 21. And it starts with, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus requires this of us because of his great love for us. And because of his great love for us, if we choose to obey, we can obey. Just two, two quick extremes about this verse. We don't want to go either of these places. The first extreme is that, that we have to live in poverty to follow Jesus, that, that Jesus calls all of his followers to give up everything in order to become a Christian. The problem with this extreme is it never happened even in the Gospels. Jesus said to Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, come follow me, and they did. But do you remember what happened after the crucifixion and resurrection? Where did Jesus find them? Fishing. Apparently they kept their boats. Apparently they didn't sell those, right? You got me? You tracking with me? They followed him, but they didn't give up everything. Matter of fact, Jesus at one point told them to go and buy supplies for the journey. They didn't give up everything. The other dangerous extreme is that, that Jesus would never ask anybody to do something crazy like liquidate all their assets and give it to the poor. Well, if you're the kind of person going, yeah, that's an extreme. We don't want to go there. Uh, you're the kind of person who finds comfort in that. That might be a concern. Here's what Dr. David Platt writes. The fact that Jesus did not command all of his followers to sell all of their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of person to whom Jesus would issue that command. When it comes right down to it, Jesus doesn't always call followers to sell everything and give it all to the poor. Jesus does call some followers to liquidate all their assets and give it all to the poor. And he does it 
not because he wants our money. We, we read last week from Psalm, I own the cattle on a thousand hill. That's God's way of saying everything is mine. I don't need your money. But what I want is your heart. And if your 401k dominates your thoughts, I don't have your heart. And if your toys that you work so hard to have the money to buy and maintain and upkeep, if those dominate your time, I don't have your heart. And if every time you hear someone preach or talk about money and stewardship and tithing and you get mad and you bust a vein and you're in a funk for the rest of the day, I don't have your heart. Jesus wants your heart. He doesn't need your money. But he may need you to give away your money so that you know that he has your heart. I think from uh, time to time, God makes outrageous requests of some of his followers. Because we need to know where our heart is. He knows where our heart is. But sometimes he asks us to do just absolutely outlandish things. Because we need to see the condition of our heart, our willingness to obey and to follow. We need to see where our priorities are. We need to see who or what do we really love. And so from time to time, Jesus the Holy Spirit, the Father, ask us to do something so that we can gauge where we're actually at. And, and maybe that's what God will be doing. If your spouse is upset when you get home and either they tell you why, it's because I can't believe what he said, I can't believe Pastor Earl's preaching on this five weeks in a row, or they don't know and they can't tell you. It could be because... God needs you to gauge where your heart is. And so I don't know. I don't know what God's stirring in you. I don't know what he may stir in you. Um, but from time to time, I know that God comes and taps us on the shoulder and says, what's really important to you and what really matters? And here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to, to do this to demonstrate that your, your comfort is more important to you than my kingdom. I'd like for you to try this. I'd like for you to, uh, to liquidate these assets so that you know that everything you have has come from me and that it does not matter more to you than my kingdom. I want you to be obedient to this outlandish, extreme request so that you know obeying my word and following my spirit's leading is more important than your own wisdom and, and, uh, and your own sense of what God would or would not do or would or would not ask. Jesus asked this man to unblock his heart, to reorient his heart, and to be willing to sacrifice everything. And sadly, the man wasn't willing. He walked away, his face fell, and he walked away sad. And I just wonder if Jesus were to make a rich young man request of you, if he were to ask you to lay a dream aside, to, to liquidate some assets, if he were to ask you to, to change your plans, if he were to ask you to, to downsize, if he were to ask you to sacrifice some of your comforts and privileges and rights, 
If you were just to say, just open your hands and let me do what I want to do with your stuff and your time and your abilities, how would you respond? I'll be as honest as I know how. If the Spirit is prompting in you right now something that he wants you to do, what may seem like an extreme step he wants you to take, there's probably another voice in your head saying, but what about this? And what about that? And think about this. And how bad could that be? And this could happen. And the truth is that a lot of what that other voice says could be true. But when we open our hands and are obedient to what the Spirit is asking us to do, the blessings that come because of that are far more than we could ever imagine. And when we decide, God, you have my heart, and I'll go wherever you want to go, even if that means Southeast Asia, even if that means going around and asking churches for money, and then depending on them to faithfully give, okay, God, I'll do it. 20 years later, here Wayne stood and said, listen to just the tip of the iceberg of what, of, of what God has done, of the blessings we've been part of, because we're willing to open our hands and be obedient. There's a lot of risk in this kind of obedience. But the risk for blessing when God asks you to do something is so much greater than the risk of anything you could possibly lose. What's your choice? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, what a terribly weighty concept. What a terribly weighty conversation. That we, that I, that we could come to you with right hearts and right motives and walk away sad because we're unwilling to obey. That we could come wanting more of the kingdom and walk away actually not being part of it because we harden our hearts. Father, I pray that your spirit would move among us. I pray that you would, you would tap us on the shoulder, that you'd whisper us in the ear, that however you do it, that you would cause every brother and sister of mine in here to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that we're following Jesus Christ, that we're part of the kingdom of God, that we're obedient and willing to do what the Holy Spirit prompts us to do. And Lord, for those who are struggling who already for the last week perhaps have been feeling the tension, they know that there's something you're asking of them, something you desire of them, and they just don't know if they can do it. Lord, I pray that the words from verse 21 would reverberate in their heart, would echo in their soul, that you look at them and you love them. And may your love not be a license to ignore you, but it may, may be a motivation to obey you and the strength to do what seems like they could never do 
Father, thank you. Thank you that you, you ask not for our, our money, our stuff, our time, our talents, our treasures, but that at the heart of it, you just want our heart. May we be people who have completely given you our hearts. We pray all this in the name of the one you sent because you love us and wanted to give us all of you. Amen. Could you stand so we could bless one another as we depart? For those of you who are guests and aren't part of our worshiping community normally, um, I'm going to pronounce a blessing, and when we're done, the congregation will respond in unison and also to you. And in that way, we'll, uh, as co-heirs in Christ, we'll bless one another. May you receive whatever rich young man challenge God has for you. May you find yourself obedient. And may the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit give you peace. Amen. You are loved deeply. Go with grace.